Well, Father, thank you that you've spoken and you've written it down in your word for us. And it's with anticipation that we now reach for our Bibles. And it's with humble hearts and with a mindset of continued worship that we would listen to your word carefully and in obedience to you and in an act of worship to you. Would you use it well in our lives today, Lord, and instruct us and use it to conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I tell you, it is difficult for us to realize in this era of time what it must have been like on July 11th, 1804, when the sitting vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, met in uh, uh, Weehawken, New Jersey, and stood back-to-back, I assume for a minute, with the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, loaded guns in hand, marching so many steps, turning around, facing each other, and firing with their pistols to resolve a conflict between the two. Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, was struck fatally hit. It was two o'clock the next afternoon that he passed away. It is interesting to note in history that that was a time when dueling was coming to an end. There had actually been some laws made to outlaw it, and and by participating in that, it was actually, uh, in essence, the end of Aaron Burr's political career. He was never able to regain traction after that. I've often thought about Alexander Hamilton lying in his bed, and I assume that he must have had some level of cognizance that he had lost the duel. And he's lying in bed and dying for about 24 hours. He must have had some thought running through his mind. I wonder if it was like, you know, that worked really well. That really went well. That was a good thing. We really accomplished our purposes there. Isn't it interesting how foolish we can be when we have strong convictions? We want to take a stand, but we have disagreement with those around us. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 today, and we are continuing to work our way through a list of the criteria and credentials for spiritual leaders in the local church. This is very important for the stability of our church, and we're also using this as a reminder that this is a call to all of us to live with a biblical mindset and to implement these qualities into our lives. Today, we have this matter of getting along with one another. The direct application of the passage, as I've said, is Paul writing, Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy that he would implement in the church a watch over who's appointed to the eldership and to the pastoral roles, who's going to lead the church at Ephesus spiritually, and Paul expected Timothy to enforce it. And in our list today, we're taking our time to break this list down and look at these qualities one at a time. It's interesting to me that following not being a drunkard from last week in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, a reminder that if you're a pastor, elder, leader in the local church, you're not to be one who is, uh, is fond of drink to the point that you're not a spirit-controlled man and you allow alcohol or other substances to control you. Interestingly enough, the follow-up to that is this little phrase, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, It's interesting to me because probably in almost 
90% of all disputing and fighting, especially if you, you watch it on real TV or cops or something like that, you can almost be assured alcohol's involved in disputes. It's amazing. Well, let's remind ourselves of our list in case you're new to us. Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1, this saying is trustworthy, it's reliable. If anyone wants or aspires to, to serve in the office of an overseer of the local church, is what he means. He's desiring a noble task. It's a high calling. Therefore, verse 2, an overseer or a pastor or an elder of the local church, he must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman kind of a man. Fidelity matters in spiritual leaders and in all the rest of us in the Christian community. He must be sober-minded, serious. He must be mature, self-controlled, not lacking in discipline. He must be respectable, respect-worthy. He must be hospitable. He must love people and engage with people and encourage people. He must be able to teach the things of God to those who are less mature spiritually. And then verse 3, where we were last week, he must not be a drunkard, one who lingers over wine or is beside wine a lot. He must not be violent but gentle he must not be quarrelsome. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up this aspect of the power of money over leaders. Not a lover of money. The ESV that I've just read is the same translation as the NIV on this phrase. To be not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Quarrelsome has the idea of being short-tempered. It's interesting, isn't it? You wouldn't think that Paul would have to write to spiritual leaders and say, don't be short-tempered, don't be so impatient, don't be, don't be uh, uh, somebody who's a brawler. The old King James translated it to be no striker. A striker, that is, bam, one who fights, who's lashing out at the people around him, trying to control through power, through an arrogant, proud actual physical dominance of somebody. Quick to speak up with your words. I like the way the New American Standard translates it. You've got to get your dictionary out to understand that. But it's not pugnacious. Don't you like that word? Pugnacious. It's a good word. I don't know how to spell it, but I like to say it. Not pugnacious, but gentle. So I pulled out my dictionary to look up pugnacious and it shed a good bit of light on this concept. The idea of being... Not violent, not quarrelsome, but gentle, as opposed to gentle, be gentle. Pugnacious means having a belligerent, you know that word, belligerent. If you have teenagers in your house, you know it, right? Not belligerent, assertive, hostile, combative nature. That's pugnacious, to be belligerent and assertive and hostile, combative in nature. If you're not violent and not quarrelsome, but you're gentle, it means that he's not an angry, intimidating, self-willed person, nor does he demand his own way with power and strength and authority. Rather, he's characterized as a gentle, calming person. He's considerate of what others are saying and thinking and how they feel. He's not a bull-in-the-china-closet kind of leader. His emotions are under control. He's not losing his temper. He's not short-fused. It's interesting that even in church leadership, this can cause great problems. I would venture to say that of all the churches that have blown up or split, that often the reason a church divides is because their leadership has been pugnacious. 
They've been arrogant and they've been strong and they've been fighting and they haven't resolved it in a proper manner. They have not been gentle. When the leadership divides, the congregation divides and Satan wins a great victory and the cause of the gospel is negatively impacted in, the, in that community. Often it even means the demise of the the church and its testimony in the community. Lately, the last few months, we've seen examples that are bizarre on the evening news even of squad cars coming into churches and, and arresting people and people fighting in the churchyard. What a shame. It's interesting, it doesn't just happen today, but there's an interesting account that I was thinking about in Acts chapter 15 with the great Apostle Paul who wrote this passage and perhaps even had this kind of thing in mind. It was the Apostle Paul who, who gave us so much of our New Testament, who gives us instruction on how to order and run our churches and, and how to discipline our lives in godliness and to be spiritual. He teamed up with a guy named Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. It all comes to a head. They had been traveling in ministry in the book of Acts and they divided over young John Mark, and it says that, that their disputing was so sharp that they had to part ways. They could not resolve it. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas is known as the, the son of encouragement. He was known throughout the churches as, as a stabilizing factor, and Paul and Barnabas could not get along to the degree that they had to divide. It can happen to everyone if we're not careful. You might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't think I have any problem with that. I get along with people. I'm a... Because I want to apply this not only directly to our church leadership, and I praise God for unity all these years at Fellowship Bible Church. Our board members, even when we don't agree, or even when there's been some strong disagreement, there's been a great bond of peace in the love of Christ and a respect for one another. And God has honored that unity of leadership here. I'm thankful for that. But let me just read, I, I jotted down a list of things that I thought might help us apply this, and I'm speaking most directly to the men, but even women and young people can be pugnacious, can't we? Some of the indicators that I might be a self-willed, brawling kind of a man that Paul is talking about here. Violent, not gentle, quarrelsome. He runs his home with the strong hand of a dictator. He believes that he has exceptions to the rules that he expects everyone else to keep. His children and his wife, truth be known, live in the home with a fear of crossing him or upsetting him. If you could get the people closest to him at work to tell their true feelings, they would say that he is arrogant, inflexible, and often disagrees with the majority. He thinks that he's never wrong, and you will, ever, you will rarely ever hear him say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? I wonder if that is anyone here today. I wonder if it's not true that all of us could be reminded of how important it is to have this Christian quality of a grace of gentleness that would characterize us. I know that I need it. It is always interesting to me how God uses the message to interface with my own life. And I have to work on, on this dynamic that I've heard other preachers mention. And that is that just because I've preached something, I sometimes think I've lived it when I really haven't. I spend most of Wednesday in my, what I call my dungeon desk. It's down in the corner of my basement and it is pretty much a dungeon 
But I go there on Wednesdays, and I try to dedicate Wednesdays to study. And I need to actually even improve that and keep it more dedicated. I allow myself to be too interrupted. But by Wednesday, I'm trying to read my commentaries. I'm trying to examine the text so that when we gather on Sunday morning, there will be a worthwhile word here. And that God will use me as the mouthpiece for us to gather and worship Him through the hearing of His Word and in turn leave these doors through these doors and, and implement with obedience what we know God's Word to teach. And so on Wednesday I was reading and trying to begin to rough out my outlines and trying to think through what direction God would have us go with, with these phrases here in our list. And boy, did I ever realize how often I was not gentle from Wednesday to Sunday. I was guilty of being pugnacious a time or two. Isn't it interesting? It's like you're trying to be ready to teach on something, and then all of a sudden you realize, I'm pretty self-willed. And so it brought to my mind numerous questions about our text today, and I want us to do a topical Bible study. So we're going to turn in our scripture a little bit, less exegesis and a little more of just referencing some of these concepts. And so we have this call we have this phrase, we have a standard that is set for the local church, and that is, if you're going to be a pastor, a leader, an elder in the local church, you must not be violent, you must not be a striker, you must be gentle, and you must not be quarrelsome, you must not be pugnacious. And so there's three questions that I would like to ask and answer that I think are so important in starting with our elders and our pastors to examine our hearts Moving to our, the men of our church, the women, all of us here of all ages, we are called to be characterized with a gentle love like Christ rather than be pugnacious. Elders and pastors are, are to be models of maturity, spiritual maturity and godliness. We're supposed to not be arrogant and angry and filled with pride and dominating other people. We also recognize that elders and pastors work with and around other people all the time. And so we've got to be able to get along with one another. This is such an important dynamic. This is like oil or grease in the bearings so that things can go well, that we're gentle and not pugnacious. Three questions then come to my mind. And the first is this, and this is the, the heartbeat of our message today, these three questions, and then we will answer them with some topical Bible study. And in so, uh, our result, hopefully, will be at the end of the message that we will have a little better grasp on how not to be pugnacious. Number one, why is it that God's people, born again, blood-bought, redeemed, sin-forgiven, heaven-bound, brothers and sisters in Christ, have to be told so many times in our New Testament to get along? Don't you think that's a good question? Did you get it? Why is it, why is it that God, we're God's people? We're the family of God. The old is gone. The new has come. We've been to the cross. We're the church of the living Christ. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We're blood-bought ones. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We're on our way to heaven. We're just passing through. Why is it? Why is it that in our New Testament we are told over and over and over to bear with one another, forgive one another, be kind to one another, be gentle and loving, don't look down on one another, but esteem others higher than yourselves? What is it? What is it that, that we have to be told? And I was thinking about that and, and, and James chapter 4 came to my mind. Will you turn there with me, please? And let's address this first question with James chapter 4. 
We're not going to exegete the passage. We're going to just address with some concepts that I think you'll see here. And by the way, if you're not taking notes, you might want to take notes today, even if it's not your normal um, practice, because these passages of Scripture, though very well known to many, might be exactly what you're looking for to study throughout the week. James chapter 4 is a really interesting passage because James begins it with verse 1 by asking the question, so what is it that causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is it that you believers in Christ can't get along? Why is it? What's going on? He's going to give three reasons why. And the first one is our selfish passions. Our selfish passions. He said, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Do you know what it is to be at, have a war within you for a selfishness and a passion inside yourself that you want things the way you want them and that's the way it is? Or is that just me? You recognize how stinking selfish we really are? I mean, we have the Spirit of God in us. Our sanctification positionally and, and, and our, our judicial declaration of our justification and our sanctification means that we are set apart from our sin in the mind of God. And when He looks at us, He sees us as redeemed ones. But we're still in this body of death. We're still living in a process where we're to be growing and conforming to the image of Christ. And it will only be completed, this matter of our sanctification, a separation from sin. It will only be complete when we're in the presence of our Lord. We will see Him in And we will be like Him, 1 John says. And in the meantime, boy, the old ways die hard, don't they? And we just really want things to be the way we want them, or things can flare up inside us in in our interaction with people around us. This affects us at the level of our marriage, in our parenting. Fathers are commanded in Ephesians 5, do not exasperate your children. What's that all about? That's about a father being overbearing and strong because he wants things to be a certain way in his home and... And he, he, he tears the heart out of his child with his, with his anger and with his dominance. That's being pugnacious. Not being a gentle leader. We simply want things our way. That's our selfish passions. James goes on, you want to know what causes fights among you? Isn't it this? Isn't it your passions that war within you? You desire and you do not have. And so you get so angry you could murder, basically is what he's saying there. He goes on in verse 3. He said, you, you ask and you don't receive. He's talking about, I believe, your prayer life. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Because you really just want to indulge it on your own passions. You have wrong motives for why you want what you want. And when you don't get what you want, you get angry with the people around you. Anger is blocked goals, isn't it? If I want to go from here to the back of the room, and that's what I have on my agenda, and that's what I'm doing, and you try to put a block in my way, what do I do? I don't like it. And for men, this is particularly an important subject because when men don't get their way, they feel what? They feel disrespected. What do you mean I have to? No, no, no. That's not, I'm the man of this house. I had this plan. We're going to do No, we're going to do and change. And then your wife's trying to change you. Your kids are trying to change you. And you feel disrespected. And so you're the strongest guy in the house. So you can, you can shut them all down with anger. And your passions well up inside you and say, no, I'm going from here to there. Get out of my way. And so that's why a man will fight other men even. It seems foolish and stupid. Women don't understand. Why do men like to fight? Because if you've ever been disrespected, you would know what it feels like. You get out of my space or I'll move you out of my space. It's part of being a man. And it's a good quality 
but in its unredeemed form, it creates disputing and troubles. These passions. Second thing he says is our stupid pride. Our stupid pride from our selfish passions. And parents, forgive me for using the word stupid this morning. I'm using it in a literary fashion. Um, he says, down, slip down to verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God, what? Verse 6, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. To call for humility. Our pride gets in our way, right? Our passions, our pride. And then he says in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil, Satan, is number three uh, reason that answers our question. Why do God's people need to be told to get along over and over and over? Because of our selfish passions. Because of our stupid pride. We think we're number one. We don't like esteeming other people higher than ourselves. And because, uh, let her see, our public enemy number one is Satan. Satan, our public enemy number one. Satan loves to divide. Satan loves to tear down. Satan wants to destroy. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And we can get so caught up in an agenda that sometimes it doesn't even make sense. And we upset all the people around us. You say, oh, but sometimes these are important things. I mean, I recognize that church leaders especially, and men characteristically, but women and young people too, we have convictions, we have opinions, we have things that we believe in. And so there we are, the church elder board meets, and we're seated at the table, and we have to deal with really important things like, are we going to have chairs or pews in our new auditorium? That's never been a problem here, but it wasn't long ago, a a pastor that I'm very close to had been pastoring his church for 37 years, just about came unglued and left over the fact that they were remodeling their auditorium and wanted to put chairs exactly like these because they had seen these and take the pews out of their church. And they about came unglued at the leadership level. Well, we have conviction. We have things that we care about. We want to do it. Almost always it boils down to what? It boils down to to a selfishness, an inability to to think the way the other person's thinking. I'm not suggesting that we should ever compromise biblical conviction, but I'm saying that it is probable and most likely that when division enters, even Christian organizations, churches, mission boards, the mission field, teams on the mission field, that it is almost always over flies in the ointment. It is almost always over little foolish things that really don't matter, that people are willing to fight over. By the way, it is interesting to note that at the leadership level in ministry world, in church world, do you know why pastors quit? Do you know why missionaries leave the field? It's almost never that they don't enjoy ministering to people, sharing the gospel, preaching the word. It's that they can't get along with one another and they start fighting at the leadership level. That is far and away the number one reason why people get out of ministry. They can't get along with their team. It's interesting, isn't it? What is that all about? It's pugnacious. I'm going to say that word a lot. I like it. It's pugnacious. No doubt I will be reminded about my own pugnaciousness. Is that a word? From now on. You're being pugnacious. That communicates, doesn't it? You're being pugnacious. Well, that's question number one. Why is it that God's people, born again, blood-bought, redeemed, sin-forgiven, heaven-bound, brothers and sisters in Christ, have to be told so often to get along? 
because of our selfish passions, our stupid pride, and Satan, who is public enemy number one. Question number two then, and I want to be practical here for just a few minutes, and we're going to have you turn in your Bible, and in just a minute we're going to end up in Proverbs, and it's going to mostly be Proverbs. You might want to write these down if you don't read Proverbs very often. They will be very helpful. Question number two that I think applies to, how can we be gentle, especially at the leader's level? What are the high-risk areas? Let's call them landmines. What are the landmines to watch for? What are the high-risk areas? Because, listen, Satan is very effective, but Satan is not very creative. He just does the same things over and over. It is very predictable the areas that are going to cause the root of most of the problems. So if if there's division at the leadership level, if there's division in a marriage, if there's division in a family, division at the workplace, you can almost count on the fact that one of these landmines has gone off. Landmine number one is simply an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to forgive. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 before we head to our Old Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians chapter 4. And these are excellent verses for those of you who might be young in the Lord or just now learning your Bible. You ought to take a pen and circle it. You can write in your Bible. It's okay. And mark these verses down. They're very helpful, very practical. Young people, you need to pay attention to these verses. Listen to what God's Word is telling you here. Verse 29, Ephesians 4. Let no corrupt communication, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion. There is an appropriateness of speech in an elders meeting, in a marriage, at a family dinner table, in the workplace. There's an appropriateness. And when we violate and cross those lines with our speech, what happens? People get mad. We start getting angry. We let our words spin out of control. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But only what is good for building others up that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. But that verse alone would pretty much solve this whole area, wouldn't it? Ephesians 4.29 Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's a great reality, isn't it? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Malice means I want you to be hurt. I want bad things to happen to you. Verse 32 is where I was heading. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You can almost count on it that when there's division in a church, when there's division on an elder board, when there's division on a pastoral staff, This is what's going to happen. Somebody has offended somebody else and they're not willing to forget. Forgiveness. We're to bear with one another and with a love that covers a multitude of sin. When you're not willing to forgive. And isn't it amazing? Sometimes people will be offended down down here and nobody even knows about it. And they hold on to it even years later. They can't even remember the details of the offense, but they knew they were offended and they're still mad about it. That's ridiculous. Wasted years. Instead of coming together and being willing to say, I was wrong. Get it out. I was wrong. I messed up. I was so wrong. I was so selfish. It was wrong of me to talk that way. Would you please forgive me? I don't like it when I'm that way. 
And I am somebody who's in process. An unwillingness to forgive ends up in holding grudges. Let's quick go to Proverbs now and, and let's just uh, fill this in with a couple more principles from Solomon in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. If you get to the book of Proverbs, it won't be hard for you to flip your pages now and follow about five more verses from Proverbs. What are the high risk areas? What are you almost going to be assured of? That if you're pugnacious and not gentle, it has to do with the fact that, letter A, you are unwilling to forgive. Somebody somewhere is unwilling to forgive. It leads to holding grudges. And holding grudges leads literally to hatred. To where you can say about somebody that you even stood down in front of a church and, and, and gave your life to them in marriage. And you can say, I can't stand that person. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens from a lack of forgiveness to the point that you hold a grudge against that person to the point that it breeds hatred inside. Look at Proverbs 10.12. Proverbs 10.12. Look what it says. Hatred stirs up, here's our word, strife. That's what the whole message is about. Not getting along. Strife. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Isn't that interesting? Love's kind of a sissy word, though. Hate's a strong word, isn't it? No. Love is a Christ-like word. And hate is a tool of the devil. Hatred. Hatred then leads to retaliation. And let's remind ourselves in chapter 24, verse 29. Look what he says. 24, 29, he says, Do not say, don't do this. Do not say, Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. That is a clear indication that you have not forgiven someone. You have not forgiven someone if you are willing to retaliate, if you're holding a grudge, if you have a bitterness that leads towards hatred in your heart. Chuck Swindoll says, it's funny, when my wife and I fight, she doesn't get hostile, she gets historical. She, uh, no, she doesn't get hysterical, she gets historical. What she, you remember when you did that, right? Listen, if you're saying, do you remember what you... You can guarantee you haven't forgiven that person. No, 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 I've forgiven you, I'm just pointing out the facts. All right, away you go, away you go, have fun for the next day or two. An unwillingness to forgive, landmine number one. Landmine, landmine number two, while we're in Proverbs, is an unbridled tongue. Unbridled, unwise speech. An unbridled tongue. This, this is uh, the cause of harsh words. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 15, 1 and 2, look what it says. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Proverbs 15, 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. I sometimes wonder what it would be like, and it would be humiliating for your pastor as well, that if we had like this sky cam that could follow our congregation around all week, you know, at the customer service counter at a grocery store because your bread had mold on it. Um, you know, dealing with a mechanic for the 10th time, can't get the rattle out of your brakes. 
as you demand your rights, as you demand your money back, as you show a pugnacious, angry spirit and divide relationships. I wonder what it'd be like to show these on the screen and, and see how we've lived out Christ-likeness all week long. And I think this verse right here, Proverbs 15:1, just a soft answer often will turn away the wrath. You know that? Ah, but because of our passion and our pride, we don't like to do that, what James reminded us of. Unbridled speech includes harsh words, Proverbs 15.1. It includes lies and gossip. Turn the page to chapter 16, verse 28. 16.28, it includes lies and gossip. A dishonest man or a lying tongue creates strife. A dishonest man spreads strife. And a whisperer, that word whisperer in the ESV is a word for gossip. A gossip separates close friends. Lies and gossip will cause division among the brethren. And then turn the page again to chapter 18 and we have just the, the broad collective category of unwise, foolish talk. Proverbs 18, verses 6 and 7. Proverbs 18, verses 6 and 7. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. You know, just thoughtless, careless talk will get you in trouble. The landmine of an unwillingness to forgive, the landmine of unbridled tongue or unwise speech. Finally, one more verse in Proverbs. The final landmine that we'll look at is an unrestrained temper, a quick-tempered man, an unrestrained temper. Look at chapter 29, verse 22. 29-22. 29.22, a man of wrath, that's a hot-tempered man, a man of wrath, an angry man, stirs up strife. There's our word again. That's what we're talking about, division among the brethren. We're talking about not being gentle, not getting along. A man of wrath, a hot-tempered man, an angry man, stirs up strife, creates dissension, division, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Where there's a lot of anger, there will be a lot of sin. Count on it. You will make a fool out of yourself every time you lose your temper. Listen, I don't have the time, nor do I hardly have the interest as to all the reasons you might be an angry man. I don't know what your dad did or what your mom did or who abused you, and I'm not minimizing the seriousness and the gravity and the influence and the negative impact on our lives when we're children that create issues for us when we're adults. But somewhere along the line, you've got to let the Spirit of God rule in your life. And you've got to figure out a way to to get your priorities straight, get your temper under control, get your words under control. Get your bitter spirit tamed. It is a tool of the devil. It's destroying you and it's destroying your home and it makes you ineligible for spiritual leadership in your church. Question number one. Why is it that we blood-bought ones have to be told to get along? Our passions, our pride, and Satan. What are the high-risk landmine areas and unwillingness to forgive an unbridled tongue and unrestrained quick temper? Let's go quickly to Colossians chapter 3, and with this we will wrap up. Because the final question is really a very important question, and can I challenge you with some homework today? 
Will you take your bulletin and jam it in here in Colossians chapter 3 in your Bible? Or if you don't have your Bible with you today, will you write it down on your bulletin with a pew pen? Take one of those yellow cards and stick it into Colossians chapter 3. And can I challenge you to read Colossians chapter 3 at least three times this week? Slowly and carefully with your pen in your hand. And let the Spirit of God teach you. Every time you read through it, I'll bet you'll see something different than the day before. Read Colossians chapter 3 at least three times. Listen, in Colossians chapter 3 is the reminder that in Christ we are something that we were not outside of Christ. And and that we have the ability to become gentle, peacemaking, cooperative, strong leaders. A strong leader doesn't have to be angry. He doesn't have to be a striker, a brawler. Somebody who controls with strength and domineering attitudes, intimidation, pride, and arrogance. Listen, Colossians chapter 3, the question, third question is, so how do I become a gentle, gracious, controlled leader or person? How do I become a gentle, gracious, controlled person? Let me just click off three concepts very quickly, and you, in your devotional life this week, would you spend time, because this is the bottom line, listen to me. In the same way that I cannot stand up here and make anybody go on a diet from food this week to lose weight, I cannot stand up here and make anybody grow spiritually this week. I can only challenge you and and encourage you, share some of the things that I struggle with, and point it out, and you immerse yourself in Colossians chapter 3, and you ask the Spirit of God to begin to renew your mind and change your heart, and you watch and see what God does. First of all, you'll notice that it starts with salvation. It starts with salvation. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's born-again people. That's people who are immersed in Christ. In God's mind, when you've been to the cross, and you've confessed and forsaken your sin, and you've received the righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ alone, and the exchange at the cross has taken place, and you're born again in the mind of God, He identifies you with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It's as though you were with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, somebody so identified with Christ. It's as though you've been to the cross, buried, and raised again to newness of life. And in Christ you have. He's done that for us as our representative. It starts with salvation. And my point here would be this. That if you're not born again, then you're not going to be able to have victory over the flesh in the way that a born again man can. You need to come to Christ first. Admit your weaknesses. And you'll find that if you've been able to go to the cross and bow your head before a holy God and admit your sinfulness and receive His free gift of grace, that once you've been able to do that and your heart has broken before the Lord and you've accepted the righteousness of Christ for your salvation, you'll be able to go to your wife or to a fellow board member and you'll be able to bow your head and say, I've sinned against you, would you please forgive me? If you're too proud to do it before a holy God, you'll be... Far too proud to do it before fellow man, I'll tell you that. It starts with salvation, but notice that heaven, heaven number two, becomes our preoccupation. You've got to change your mindset. Look at verse two. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Our problem is that we think like all the earthlings. We don't think like heavenly people. We don't think like people who have a home in heaven established for us, seated in the heavenlies in Christ, ambassadors for Christ passing through. We don't think high enough. We're too engrossed and embedded in the system down here, and we think 
earthly. We don't think heavenly, and our minds have not been renewed largely because apart from Sunday morning or a little minute here or there, we never immerse in the Word of God that is the the washing and the, the renewing part that the Holy Spirit can use to rebuild us. It starts with salvation. Heaven has to become our preoccupation. You have to start thinking heavenly, thinking biblically. For you have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're all about Jesus. That needs to be the drive. Every circumstance that we find ourselves in, at the exchange counter at Walmart for some batteries that didn't work when they were brand new. I can't believe they put dead batteries on the shelf. That's what happens when you bring it in from you know that country across the ocean and things like that. And what's wrong with this place? Are you thinking, I am an ambassador of Christ. I am seated in the heavenlies. I am thinking heavenly right now. No, you're thinking just like everybody else who's a pagan walking around wanting their rights and their passions. You've got to change the way you think. Thirdly, the goal is extermination. There's certain things in your life that have to be put to death. The goal is extermination. Look at verse 5. Put to death. The noun is who? You put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming In other words, God is going to pitch people in hell for this list, and then we're blood-bought ones, seated in the heavenlies, and we're living just like them. You can't do that. He goes on to talk about the very attitudes that we've talked about in verse 8. Now you must put them all away, exterminate them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, lying from one... Those are the things that we've talked about right here that destroy unity The goal is to put these things to death, but you can't take off without putting on. Notice verse 5, put it to death, and then look at verse 12, put it on. Put on as God's chosen ones, verse 12, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love. What woman here wouldn't want her husband to live out that list right there? What person here doesn't want their pastor and their elders living that list? Putting off the old ways. Putting on as God's chosen one. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. That is total transformation number four. Total transformation. You want to begin to change? It starts with salvation. Heaven must become your preoccupation. The goal is extermination of the old ways as you grow in grace. Fourthly, total transformation is your experience as you put on the things of a godly person. Let's bow in prayer. It's possible as you've listened to this message that that there's been some things that you've really realized. I mean, fathers, listen to me. How awful to think that your family is afraid of you. What is wrong with you? Maybe it's as simple as you haven't been to the cross. What about people at work? Maybe you're the foreman. Maybe you're a manager. Maybe you have people under you. Do you lord it over them? Are you gracious and kind? 
Husbands and wives, why is there bitterness spewing out? Why the anger? Why a lack of forgiveness? It's because we're not heavenly in our thinking. We haven't exterminated some things and we haven't put on in a transforming way Christ. May Fellowship Bible Church only and always ever appoint elders and pastors who are gentle and not pugnacious. It really, really matters. So, Father, we bow our heads. We acknowledge our fleshly weakness. Lord, we even get weary of our fleshly weaknesses. And we long for that total transformation that will happen on the day that we'll see you. But, Father, we also know you as our Heavenly Father. You are a loving and a kind Heavenly Father, and you've never called us to do something that we're not capable of doing. And putting on Christ is our everyday job. Would you help us, Lord, to put away anger and strife and division and be gentle? Thank you that the Lord Jesus modeled that gentleness. Thank you that we have you as a loving Heavenly Father who's a gentle Heavenly Father. Father, would you use this now in our lives throughout the week? May the Holy Spirit bring it to mind. May we discipline ourselves to, to further study. May we allow Jesus Christ to rule over us as Lord. All for the glory of our Lord Jesus. It's in His name we've gathered, in His name we've preached, and in His name we go home.